You're listening to the Moonlighters, the Yale Internal Medicine Podcast. Talking with expert guests, dropping expert knowledge. This is your morning report fix on the radio. Your daily dose of internal medicine. I just came up with that. Hello, and welcome to the Yale Internal Medicine Podcast. Today we have two resident hosts, myself, Gabriella Wilson, and my co-host, John Houston. And our topic today will be meningitis. So this may seem like a basic topic, but we're going to take a deeper look at how to approach a patient with suspected meningitis, how certain physical exam maneuvers can help support a diagnosis of meningitis, what to consider on your differential, and how to work up and treat a case of meningitis. And to do that, we have Dr. Grant here. So Dr. Matthew Grant is an assistant professor of medicine here at Yale and leader of the internal medicine residency inpatient medicine curriculum. He received his bachelor's degree at Cornell University, after which he attended SUNY Upstate Medical University for <coughs> medical school. He completed his residency training at Thomas Jefferson University Hospital and then stayed in Philly to complete infectious disease fellowship at Temple University Hospital. His research interests include opportunistic infections, candidiasis, and transplantation medicine. So thank you for joining us today. Yeah, I'm thrilled to be here, guys. Thank you. Yeah, no problem. All right, so we'll start with a case as we usually do. Um, so we have a 54-year-old female. She has a history of migraines, and she presents to the ED with a one-day history of generalized lethargy. She was in our usual state of health yesterday when she developed nasal congestion and progressive fatigue. Overnight, she experienced a generalizable headache that was not responsive to acetaminophen. This morning, she was difficult to arouse by her husband, um, and due to some mild confusion, she was brought to the ED for evaluation. In the ED, she's stable. Her vitals show a temperature of 102.6 Fahrenheit. Heart rate is 120. Respiratory rate is 25, and blood pressure is 100 over 55. A chest X-ray is done, and it shows a questionable right lower lobe infiltrate versus atelectasis. She is given a one gram of ceftriaxone and one liter of, of LR. The ED calls you, uh, Dr. Grant, to admit this patient to your service uh, for community-acquired pneumonia. So you go down to the ED to evaluate the patient. And uh, so, Dr. Grant, kind of the first question we have is, um, what further questions would you have for this patient and their spouse who's accompanying the patient in the ED? Great. Um, well, first, I'm going to push aside the um, uh, pneumonia history taking <laughs> because I would remind all of the residents at Yale to be highly skeptical of any uh, community-acquired pneumonia diagnosis because these things don't pan out um, many times that they're billed to us as community-acquired pneumonia. <laughs> and obviously, we're here today to talk about meningitis, and there's some concerning features here, such as uh, mental status change. Um, preceding headache. So let's talk a little bit about kind of the historical taking, the, the things that you want to kind of delve into that aren't in like your standard HPI getting conversation with a patient. So along those lines, um, timing is important. You know, we're kind of moving into summer and uh, especially during the later part of the summer into the fall, we have our most common cause of uh, aseptic or viral um, meningitis in the form of enteroviral aseptic meningitis. And with summertime comes a change in activities for a lot of us. A lot of people move out into the woods and the gardens. Connecticut and the surrounding areas are pretty famous for an abundance of mosquitoes and ticks. 
And we do have uh, cases of West Nile virus, meningoencephalitis in Connecticut. And obviously, we have cases of Lyme meningitis that we encounter pretty frequently. Ticks can have multiple pathogens here. And human granulocytic anaplasmosis is another diagnosis that sometimes shows up with a aseptic meningitis picture. So starting out, I would say like those are some things to think about for the patient who's spending time in the garden or walking the dog through the woods. Um, if they've traveled, that could certainly be relevant. There are a lot of like um, geographically restricted meningoencephalitides or encephalitis presentations. Like if someone was in rural Southeast Asia, you might think about like Japanese encephalitis, for instance. For bacterial meningitis, you know, if someone had been in sub-Saharan Africa, especially during the dry season, um, especially in an unvaccinated patient, you'd think about meningococcal disease or serial infection. So travel can certainly be important. Isn't that like the meningitis belt or in Africa? Yeah, exactly. It's like vaguely machine gun shaped and, uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, spans, you know, almost from like the western coast to the eastern coast. So it's a pretty expansive belt. It doesn't go all the way down to South Africa, per se, where a lot of our residents go to do J&J work and things like that. Taking a sexual history may seem a little bit out of context in this particular presentation, but it's actually... Um, two of the most important to recognize causes of aseptic meningitis are, are sexually transmitted. So early symptomatic neurosyphilis, as opposed to late neurosyphilis, can often present as an aseptic meningitis. And obviously, you'd want to know if someone had unprotected uh, in sexual encounters in the last few months. And acute retroviral syndrome or acute HIV often presents with a constellation of symptoms that sometimes includes aseptic meningitis, like a headache and a stiff neck and things like this, uh, but usually also has other things going on, like maybe sore throat, some adenopathy, sometimes a rash as well. Other historical things to know about, um, the classic bacterial pathogens for pyogenic bacterial meningitis, if you've noticed, they tend to be encapsulated organisms. So our spleen's very important in kind of removing these organisms from the bloodstream if they get in in small numbers. So if you have a patient who's either like formally asplenic or functionally due to like a sickle cell disease, mm -hmm. um, that's an important thing to know, and that's going to raise your suspicion, especially for like pneumococcal disease, which is the number one cause of adult and the most lethal form of bacterial meningitis overall. To know whether or not someone's immunocompromised can be quite important. Sure, many people remember being taught in medical school that listeria is associated with immunocompromise, specifically T-cell immunocompromise, but we also might think about things like cryptococcus, I know we most commonly think about this in terms of late-stage HIV-AIDS infection where our CD4 counts are under 50, um, but we do see these cases in our transplant patients and even people, especially like older adults who get put on high-dose steroids, we've seen a number of cases of cryptococcal meningitis. And this would be more obvious, but if someone's had like a neurosurgical procedure, um, if they were involved in a car accident and, you know, they kind of were playing off their rhinorrhea, which in retrospect might be like a kind of low-volume CSF leak, mm -hmm. these patients are actually very prone to getting pneumococcal meningitis as well. Oh. So there's, it's kind of one of these classic like ID things, like there's like your standard HPI, and then you could have like a differential kind of pathogen-driven mm -hmm. um, way to move through the history and ask these kind of questions where your patient may not really have a great understanding of why you're jumping around <laughs> asking yeah. from all these different little pockets. Yeah. But if you really want to do like 
a perfectly packaged um, HPI and include all these things. Like these are the places you need to kind of delve into. Mm -hmm. I think that's like a thing that attracts a lot of people to ID is like the detective work. You know, asking if someone uh, traveled and went caving is like, you know, uh, not standard HPI, <laughs> no. but like that could cinch the diagnosis, which is really cool. I'm sure if you've had like a lot of encounters over your career that have been kind of interesting detective work. One thing that came to mind when you were talking about like tick-borne illnesses in, in the Northeast, I was thinking, um, I just recently learned about I think Powassan virus. Yeah, um, we just had a case in the hospital actually that was presented at our weekly ID conference yesterday. Wow. So can you tell us a little <laughs> bit about that and maybe, um, you know, just, just briefly kind of what Powassan virus is all about? Yeah. So Powassan is a uh, formerly called like deer tick virus. It is transmitted in the Northeast by Ixodes uh, or like deer ticks as opposed to like the larger dog ticks. It is like a kind of like an encephalitic virus that tends to affect people either at extremes of age, like the very young and the very old, mm -hmm. or people who have immunocompromise. It's like many encephalitises, it can be very devastating. <laughs> you know, a lot of people, if they survive, will have like either cognitive uh, or other like permanent neurologic sequelae. Uh, and there's no direct treatment for it, which is unfortunate and is unfortunately kind of a common thread amongst many of the like, especially arboviral or, you know, mosquito transmitted encephalitis causes throughout the world. So we kind of have to support these patients in the ICU, but the majority of the time we're unable to give them like a kind of pathogen-directed therapy. We kind of just have to hope and pray that they get better with time and their own immune system. Is that some? I've never heard of that before. Is that something that's like growing in numbers or just something that was unrecognized by me? <laughs> no. So there, I think there's only been around 100 cases in the U.S. reported ever. Oh, wow. Um, okay. But the states that they've been reporting from and with a greater recognition and like formal testing now available through like the CDC, um, the numbers are going up. I see. So. Yeah, I, I don't know the exact um, statistic, but I was just hearing that, like, they've been testing ticks, you know, uh, and, like, the Poisson virus is, like, becoming more rampant within within ticks. But it sounds like it hasn't had too many, you know, human cases, only 100, uh, but something to keep keep in mind. Wow, that was, like, a great review of the things, like, that uh, the ID folks think about when they're um, taking a history of meningitis. So we, maybe we can get back to our patient and kind of talk about the physical exam a little bit. Sounds great. Yeah, so just, I guess just as a general question, how do you conceptualize the physical exam for a patient that you suspect may have meningitis? What are things that you definitely want to know? Hmm. Great question. So I think especially for like pyogenic causes, which are obviously the most life-threatening and the not-to-be-missed parts, I'll break it down into two big categories. There's kind of like direct physical exam maneuvers looking for signs of meningeal irritation, and then there's kind of just like general physical exam findings. So we know that untreated bacterial meningitis kind of moves through like a rough evolution in that people tend to show up with fever, headache, and oftentimes stiff neck, and then as time goes by, they're like GCS and their overall like orientation level, and they tend to get more like somnolent, stuporous, and eventually comatose. So when you approach the patient, obviously, you always want to look at the vital signs first. Almost all patients with meningitis are febrile or are soon to spike a fever in the next <laughs> few hours, basically. Um, you also want to see if there's showing signs of shock, because certainly with, like, especially, like, uh, pneumococcal disease and meningococcal disease, they're, like, can have, like, very complicated shock courses involving, like, DIC, 
um, and endo organ dysfunction. So obviously you want to think about those things. The skin exam can be important, especially in people who are shocky and especially in like the cohort that becomes thrombocytopenic because things have been going on for a while. You want to kind of screen your mucous membranes for signs of petechial involvement. And kind of along those same lines, uh, specifically with meningococcal disease, patients tend to develop a progressive form of uh, purpuric skin involvement. And we call this purpura fulminans. We usually see this when people are very, very ill. Um, so this is like a very worrisome finding. But if you find purpura on a patient with a good meningitis story, definitely like kind of zoom in and think about meningococcal disease. Get that ceftriaxone hanging mm-hmm. as soon as humanly possible mm-hmm. before you do anything else. Now I'll talk about the other piece. So, you know, what are the signs to look for um, meningeal irritation or involvement? And classically in medical school, two things, Koenig's and Brzezinski's come up. Uh, I'll briefly talk about them if that's okay. So they were developed in patients with late forms of chronic, often tuberculous meningitis. And then I'll talk more recently, but basically one of our faculty members here, Dr. Quagliarello, who's our clinical chief in ID, did like a prospective validation for how sensitive and specific are these signs and people showing up with like meningitis syndromes. And in Koenig's, basically you lay the patient flat, you flex the hip to about 90 degrees, and then you attempt to like fully extend the knee. And if the patient is unable to do that or they have pain traveling down the posterior thigh, that's considered a positive Koenig sign. Brzezinski is um, kind of something you do Similarly, when you're looking for nuclear rigidity anyway, so you have the patient laying flat and you kind of passively flex the neck and that causes both the hips and knees to flex. So like you have their legs flat and like uh, those, uh, their lower extremities will kind of raise up off the table basically. Now the problem with both Koenig's and Brzezinski's is that in this like validation study that they were only found in 5% of patients. So you never want to wait mm-hmm. for current. They're interesting to do and they're great to show people when you find them. I've mm-hmm. found them on a number of occasions, but certainly they don't exclude the disease well with that really low sensitivity. Oh, okay. So better findings. So there's nuchal rigidity, which is basically the patient's inability to fully flex the neck and like basically bury the chin into the chest wall. One little caveat I'll say is that some of our older patients have like significant arthritis, and it can be hard to figure out if they're able to do this on a good day. So that Mm -hmm. kind of confounds things just a tiny bit. There's been a couple big, mostly retrospective studies, I'll say, that have found very reasonably high sensitivities in like the 80 to 90% range. But in Dr. Quagliarello's study that was in the New England Journal, there's only a 30% sensitivity. So like we're, I don't know what to make of this huge range. You know, obviously when you find nuclear rigidity, your um, pretest probability goes up yeah. Uh, significantly. And the last thing I'll mention, this uh, Japanese group uh, published a paper about something called the jolt accentuation of headache. Uh, so what you basically have the patient do is to rapidly, laterally move the neck back and forth at least two times per second. And if that exacerbates your headache, that's a positive sign. The problem with that is like the, I think if I do that in the studio right now, I'm going <laughs> to develop a headache. <laughs> so it's very. it was found to be very sensitive. Oh. But it's very nonspecific. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So. I tried that once, actually, when I learned about it, and it did give me a headache right away. <laughs> <laughs> it's not just me, then. That's, yeah. good. That's good. So those are, those are our kind of like four meningeal irritation exam maneuvers that we, that we talk about. That's awesome. Um, you know, the things taught in medical school sometimes, you know, in clinical practice aren't as useful. It's, it's cool when you find it, though. And, uh, you know, you're using your whole clinical gestalt, of course, um, 
the things that I, sort of I had some questions about, you know, when I'm thinking about like a CNS infection is like knowing the difference between meningitis and uh, encephalitis and then this meningoencephalitis. And if you could just like comment on that, just because my understanding was like when the brain parenchyma is affected, it can cause like neurological complications. But then, you know, part of just meningitis is, you know, uh, altered mental status. So it's kind of confusing to me a little bit. Right. I think you ha- you're off to a good start there. So I would say like in the viral encephalitides, especially in immunocompetent hosts, things like enterovirus that we talked about, or actually the general herpes virus, HSV2, um, these patients always present, or you know, vast majority of time, they're presenting with a very pure meningitis presentation, right? So they don't look toxic. They may um, be photo and phonophobic. They may look tired or frustrated or just kind of like uncomfortable, but they're always like have a good level of alertness, they're conversational, and they oftentimes have things like headache and stiff neck. So that's what I kind of think about as a pure meningitis. On the flip side, if someone comes in with fevers and they have auditory hallucinations and personality change, um, you know that there's definitely like parenchymal (laughs) involvement and you know you're dealing with an encephalitis. And a lot of these viruses, especially the ones that cause encephalitis, do have crossover like in the in the form of meningoencephalitis in that if you were to assay uh, the spinal fluid in most patients with encephalitis you are going to see like like a lymphocytic or a monocytic cellular pleocytosis so you will have abnormal CSF even though it's really like the compartment that's being involved is like the CNS parenchyma mm-hmm. itself and it's not primarily like a meningeal process and what John brought up makes a lot of sense like as I was saying, like with pyogenic bacterial meningitis untreated, they will start to deteriorate in terms of like sensorium and GCS score. So the sicker patients with bacterial meningitis can be more difficult to differentiate encephalitis from meningitis. And those are the people that tend to get broad-based empirical therapy with a combination of antibacterials and antivirals because mm-hmm. it's hard to sort it out up front. And you really do need like your lab and specific testing to help you figure out what's going on. Thanks for going over that. That makes a lot of sense. So let's, let's talk about our patient a little bit more. So just to remind everyone, uh, you know, a 54-year-old female with altered mental status and fever, and we're doing the physical exam. Um, she's lethargic. She's arousable to verbal stimuli, but it seems like she's falling asleep during the interview. She has meningeal signs, including uh, nuchal rigidity and a positive jolt test. So right as you're completing the physical exam, she develops a tonic-clonic seizure. So obviously, you know, uh, we're in the ED, you know, we're going to, you know, worry about the patient's seizure and monitor her. But after the seizure stops, we kind of have to think about our workup considerations. So one question that always comes up is, you know, what's the order of things? We have blood cultures, you know, it sounds like we want to do a lumbar puncture. Do we need a CT scan before lumbar puncture? So if you could just talk a little bit about how you conceptualize that initial workup. Yeah. So I think the things we're juggling are like plus minus CAT scan, like, you know, who needs an LP and like, when do we start antibiotics? Mm -hmm. And I think that the best way I can think about it is, you know, if you have a reasonable suspicion for bacterial meningitis, start the antibiotics. They don't have a profound quick effect on, especially like the CSF cell count and differential. It takes time for those things to change. So 
three hours isn't going to make a tremendous difference in things like protein, glucose, like oh, okay. total cell count. And the longer you go, you start to do worry about things like reduced sensitivity of like blood cultures and CSF mm-hmm. cultures, but hopefully not too much time is going by. Um, I will say that this patient is, um, you know, we we live in a somewhat litigious um, society and for, I think, good reasons. Like doctors often have to practice a bit defensively. And whenever... I see patients who've already had LPs done. I would say the vast majority have had non-contrast CAT scans preceding mm-hmm. the LP. But this patient does meet, like, good criteria for kind of an indication for, like, an appropriate CT, you know, preceding a lumbar puncture. And you could briefly ask, like, why is this important? Mm-hmm. And it's important because um, there's been some good studies done, especially there's one from North Europe where they actually change their guidelines and reduce the stringent things that would indicate that patients need a CT scan prior to lumbar puncture. And in effect, a lot less patients got CT scans before. And they studied this kind of before and after style study. And they found that um, when they changed their policy, what was happening is that not only were less patients getting CTs, but the, the time between patient presentation and first dose of antibiotics were shortening. And patients actually had better clinical outcomes. So Mm -hmm. the problem with the CT scanner is that that time often uh, increases the latency between presentation and first dose of, let's say, ceftriaxone. But just to review, like, what kind of patients you would want to CT routinely, and I'm not saying that this should delay the antibiotics, but... So this person has abnormal level of consciousness. They have a seizure. So anybody with an abnormal neurologic exam, anybody with, like, focal findings... If you're, you know, have the ability to do like a fundoscopic exam and you see papilledema, that's important. And then in general, like people who are immunocompromised and people who have had like a history of like CNS, like strokes or mass lesions, those people have a much higher chance of having. And really what we're worried about here mm-hmm. is like herniation. Yeah. Right. So, yeah, it is, a, it is a pro and con kind of evaluation here. If you're nervous, you could try to LP with like a like a smaller spinal needle, which reduces the risk of herniation as well. So that's maybe one modifiable thing. Although our kits probably contain like a standard size (laughs) (laughs) uh, biopsy needle. All right. So it sounds like our patient then definitely would warrant a CT scan. So then one question kind of getting into timing, and you said you wouldn't want to necessarily delay antibiotics. So is this someone you would definitely start antibiotics in even before going to the CAT scan? I would, yeah, if possible. And specifically, like, if you guys are ever, like, working in the ER or on the floors and some concern comes up, we'll talk later about antibiotics, but, like, ceftraxone is, like, the drug you want to, like, get going first because if it's kind of broad activity against meningococcus, haemophilus, pneumococcus. So that's kind of like priority number one for most patients. Yeah, and I think, uh, you know, everyone kind of makes sort of this mistake earlier in their career, but, you know, the doses of ceftriaxone are different. I remember on rounds talking about someone asked me, like, what do you want to start? Mm. And I was like, ceftriaxone, one gram, and uh, and they obviously caught me in the trap because uh, <laughs> it was wrong. But, uh, yeah, so, you want to give a higher dose of ceftriaxone, two grams, I think twice a day. Yeah, um, two, so, so it's like it's four times the pneumonia dose yeah, overall. Which is, oh, yeah, yeah. Which makes sense. You know, it's kind of a good segue to kind of like talk about empiric antibiotic choice. You know, in this patient, we're starting antibiotics. We're getting the CAT scan. So what did you start? You kind of said ceftriaxone. Is there anything else that you would add to that regimen? Yeah. So I would definitely do ceftriaxone. I would do vancomycin. It's interesting. Like, uh, I know a lot of people operate under the gestalt that we live in a world with a lot of MRSA right now. And we often have this like tight 
cerebral connection between vancomycin <laughs> usage and clinical concern for, you know, staph aureus infection. The reasoning here is, is quite different. So actually, we're concerned about pneumococcal resistance to beta-lactams here. And it's a very much like a pharmacokinetic problem because in an uninflamed meningi, you lose, even with IV dosages of beta-lactams, you lose like more than 90% of the drug when you have to cross through the blood-brain barrier. So we think about optimal antibiotic kill involving a ratio of achievable drug concentration to the bug's minimum inhibitory concentration, or MIC, of like 10 to 20. And if you're treating the normal stuff with ceftriaxone, like, you know, complicated sinusitis, otitis, pneumonia, Mm -hmm. you're always going to, you're virtually always going to get adequate levels. But when you think about in a meningitis case, if you're losing so much of the drug between the blood and the CNS, um, that's when these ratios between like drug on across the blood-brain barrier and potentially higher levels of MIC, not due to frank resistance, but due to this like MIC creep kind of thing. So these more like intermediate um, streptococcal isolates. So we actually are giving vancomycin here for the possibility of like a more drug-resistant, uh, you know, strep pneumo strain. And I, I want to fight ageism in general. Um, <laughs> but uh, unfortunately, or fortunately, I don't, I don't know how to classify this, but the, the risk of uh, listerial infection, you know, we talked about extremes of age, and I do not think that 50 is an extreme of age, but 50 is the recommended age to include empiric anti-listerial therapy. And this person, I believe, was like 54 years old. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So uh, the, the beta-lactam, a non-allergic patient would typically get, they can actually get either good old-fashioned uh, IV penicillin or ampicillin. Both would be adequate pending further information. If they did have an allergy, Bactrim is kind of the alternative drug of choice for people who are allergic. And there's some compelling data that Bactrim's just as good as even like ampicillin combined with gentamicin, which is what we do for proven cases of listerial infection. So I would use those three antibacterials. And based on what we're seeing, I would probably hold off on giving empiric acyclovir for an antiviral. So why do we do this? I mean, the big reason to give acyclovir is if you're concerned about the diagnosis of HSV-1 temporal lobe encephalitis, which is a very devastating diagnosis, Mm -hmm. which has significant mortality and long-term morbidity rate. Oftentimes, people never quite get back to their baseline with this. But I think we have enough here that would be very unusual for that, including like the nuchal rigidity. So I I would probably hold off. There are some people who make the counterpoint. You know, some people do have either HSV2 or VZV aseptic meningitis, but there's not compelling data that these viral causes of aseptic meningitis truly need to be treated. Uh, When I was a fellow, like, we couldn't even do, like, VZV PCRs in the spinal fluid, and we saw a decent amount of HSV2, and we didn't treat it with antivirals because basically all forms of aseptic meningitis will self-limit with time alone. So these these patients get better on their own, and we don't have compelling data that antivirals are important, although mm-hmm. some people do give them. You know, you kind of mentioned aseptic meningitis, and, you know, it's sort of like a confusing diagnosis that I don't encounter that much, but could you just talk a little bit generally about it and, like, how you think about it? Yeah. So what is aseptic meningitis? Some people, I think, kind of refer to it as viral meningitis, and that's certainly a subset. So I would say this is like a a term for a group of diseases where you see like a lymphocytic pleocytosis on spinal fluid analysis 
and you should have a normal glucose. And protein is usually elevated, but less so on average than you see in bacterial meningitis. So the tough part here is it's a huge differential diagnosis, as I alluded to before. Um, you have things, well, we'll leave viruses to the end, but uh, so there's drug-induced aseptic meningitis, things um, uh, like as simple as ibuprofen, um, amoxicillin, Bactrim, uh, all can cause aseptic meningitis. There's been some emerging reports about uh, cetuximab as a chemotherapeutic agent that pretty frequently causes aseptic meningitis. And the thing that can throw you off about drug-induced aseptic meningitis specifically is that commonly you get a neutrophilic pleocytosis instead of a lymphocytic. So it can increase the suspicion for For a bacterial process, obviously. There are bacterial causes that I don't want to forget about that cause aseptic meningitis. So up here in in our deer ticks alone, obviously Lyme, and anaplasma are both both bacterial causes of meningitis, but once again, like you're not going to succumb or die to these if they're untreated. You know, important to make the diagnosis in and treat for other reasons, but the meningitis piece will will get better on its own. And then, so the viral group is is quite large. Um, I already mentioned uh, things like enterovirus. I think over the course of our conversation, herpes simplex two or the genital herpes virus. Interestingly, that one can cause something called Mollaray's disease or benign recurrent lymphocytic meningitis. So there are some patients out there who over the course of a lifetime will have four, five, six, seven bouts of recurrent aseptic meningitis. And that's almost always due to um, HSV2 virus. And interestingly, we have looked at this and uh, acyclovir or valacyclovir, like prophylaxis, does not reduce the bouts of meningitis in these patients, which is interesting. Other things, mumps used to cause a high burden of aseptic meningitis, but with vaccination in the U.S., we're not seeing a ton of mumps. But yeah, the list is quite long. Mm. Can I just ask a quick question that might be obvious, but with those um, causes of drug-induced aseptic meningitis, obviously you stop the offending drug. Is there any data to do anything else, or is that usually sufficient to resolve the Yeah, that's process? usually all we do. We don't usually consider like steroid therapy oh, or okay. um, it's, it's mostly supportive care and withdrawal. Wow. It's a lot of stuff here that you have to keep in your brain. Yeah, uh, <laughs> there's a lot to think about, yeah. um, but there's help around and you know, good resources mm-hmm. and, and friends to call. So. Mm-hmm. You're not alone in this. But <laughs> Perfect. Definitely, there's a lot of things that cause like abnormal CSF profiles. Yeah. So, so you know, um, the other kind of treatment that's out there is corticosteroid treatment, and just wanted to get your thoughts. Like in our patient here, you know, we started vancomycin, ampicillin, ceftriaxone. We held the acyclovir. Do you think that this patient warrants steroids? And can you just talk a little bit about steroid use in general in meningitis? Yeah. So I think. It's a little confusing just from like a conceptual degree, right? I mean, we're talking about diseases that as they progress often moved in, into like SIRS and sepsis and shock states. You can have DIC. You would think that like reducing immunity in the short term would be deleterious to the person who's going through this catastrophic illness. But on the flip side, the cranium is a closed space. Immunologically, it's somewhat of like a sanctuary site like analogous to the eyes or the prostate or the testes where a lot of meds are hard to get in there and there's not a lot of immune surveillance going on all the time. So if you can imagine, you've lived, like if I was to develop, you know, meningitis tomorrow, I've (laughs) lived almost four decades and uh, really I've never had 
presumably like a pathogen in my meninge. And the presence of that event, now you have to recruit all these host cells that have never been there before. And then there's a battle that goes on where, you know, bug is fighting immune system. And in the process, things are being lysed. Intracellular contents are spilling. Cytokines are raging. And all this leads to a ton of inflammation and kind of a proteinaceous gunk or goo. And that goo can interfere with, like, the resorption of CSF and lead to things like hydrocephalus sometimes. So it's really it's better not to think of it as, like, these things access the meninges and then they're, like, eating away at the layers of the brain. That's not why you die. You really die because of an over-exuberant host response to the presence of these pathogens that are have reached this protected or sanctuary site that usually nothing's ever been before from a bacterial perspective. So steroids, uh, what they have been shown scientifically to do, especially in adults, is that they kind of reduce mortality and other outcomes, kind of sepsis-like outcomes from shock. And specifically, when you do subset analysis, uh, you tend to see the benefit in the group of patients, one, who have pneumococcal disease, and two, who have like Glasgow coma scores on presentation that are like below 13. So for patients who come in and they're totally neurologically normal, it's not a great role for steroids. For people who have more concerning levels of alertness and orientation on, and there is a discrepancy. There's been studies done in like, I don't like to use this term, like developed nations and developing nations, but the studies that have been done in countries like Vietnam and Sub-Saharan Africa, they have not been able to show a benefit to adjunctive like dexamethasone, which is the corticosteroid we typically go to. So I would say for this patient, we know that with pneumococcal disease, it can save lives, but it seems like GCS is definitely high enough here that we're not going to see like, uh, or at least the studies haven't shown there's going to be a huge improvement here. So it would probably be okay to hold in this particular patient. And the other thing I would want people to know about steroid usage is that in terms of starting and stopping, your benefit has to be obtained by initiation either before or right alongside your first dose of antibiotics. And then if like culture data or gram stains are very compelling for a non-streptococcal etiology, we kind of ditch the steroids at that point because we know they're not really going to help. Thank you. That was a really good explanation of kind of the sanctuary site of the brain and how the inflammatory response is really what we're worried about here. I don't think I've ever gotten that kind of explanation. So that was really helpful. Um, I'll take us back to our patient now. We're going to actually go for it and do the LP on her. So we perform the LP, we admit her to the floor, and we have our CSF fluid, and now we're having the task of putting in the orders of what we want. So when you get an LP, what are the things that you want to order and what are you looking for? Sure. Um, So the things that we do routinely and have done routinely for a long time, on certain patients, the opening pressure can be very important. So if you knew someone was like highly T-cell compromised or especially had advanced AIDS, if you're thinking about cryptococcal disease, opening pressure is very important. I mean, we can talk about that if you want to, but it's a, it's a whole conversation. <laughs> Those are really the people where opening pressure is the most important because the LP is actually therapeutic in cryptococcal meningitis. And I've seen patients who are like stuporous literally wake up and start talking to me as I'm pulling CSF out of their spine and reducing their intracranial hypertension. So it's one of these like wow. magical moments in medicine like... Um, like when someone gets like Narcan and just like comes back to life. Like, what did you, they say? Like, uh, why do you have a needle in my back? Or? <laughs> no, I mean, it wasn't like, didn't happen so fast oh, that okay. it was like the Narcan effect, but just the overall tempo of it was really impressive. 
So there's opening pressure. Obviously, there's cell count and diff. Um, the cell count, you know, obviously we tend to associate bacterial process with a neutrophilic pleocytosis and non-bacterial um, with more of a lymphomonocytic pleocytosis. There is like some kinetics that change over time. So in a partially treated meningitis, things that are neutrophilic with time become more lymphocytic as the hours go by. So that's one thing to know there. We always do protein levels. You know, proteins higher than 220 uh, are very suggestive of, of bacterial infection, as well as total white cell counts above 2,000 are very, are very suggestive of bacterial meningitis. And then we also like to think about doing glucose levels. Low glucose is basically what we're concerned about here. And you could think, like, why does glucose become low? There's actually three reasons why glucose goes low in pyogenic meningitis. Um, there's consumption by, A, like the neutrophil side, and B, like the bacterial pathogen side. And then the other problem is that the way that glucose gets into the CNS, it's like there's an active ATP-driven transporter. And when I talked about this warfare going on between, you know, pathogen and host cell and all this gunk being released, that proteinaceous goo kind of blocks up these, like, transmembrane transporters, which actively need to, like, bring glucose into the spinal fluid. So three reasons why you can get low glucose. Across the board, any process that causes low glucose, what we call hypoglycorrhachia, is quite concerning. And we do see it in some non-bacterial meningitides, such as, like, CNS lymphomas, cases of neurosarcoidosis, and then granulomatous infections, which mostly involve CNS tuberculosis or CNS fungal infections. Um, so like coxy, things like that. And Can you say uh, that word again? The, uh, the hypo. Yeah. So the Latin, I think, for spinal fluid is rachia, okay. R-A-C-C-H-I-A. So if you have low glucose, it's hypoglycorrhachia. If you have high protein, it's hyperproteinorrhachia. Uh, uh-huh. And then, yeah, I hear a lot of like residents like say like, oh, they had like a, a leukocytosis in their spinal fluid. And like the correct term is like a pleocytosis. And not a leukocytosis in the spinal fluid itself. So mm-hmm. elevated white count, pleo. They stopped teaching Latin in high school, and I think that's causing all these... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> all the problems. Yeah. <laughs> oh, the last thing I'll mention yeah, is that there is, there is... The newest test would be like a, um, a spinal fluid lactate. Mm. So lactates above 3.4, also like... Especially in the patient who hasn't received antibiotics, they're very... They may even be better than any other test for the presence of bacterial suppurative meningitis. Do you order that now, or is that sort of still in the works of uh, research? I don't think it's hit prime time yet. Mm -hmm. (laughs) A lot of it is, like, by the time I, like, get involved, like, the spinal flu has already been, like, Mm -hmm. the basics have already been ordered and stuff. I was thinking about this, you know, like, in other infectious areas, like, uh, say, like, uh, pleural fusion or empyema, you check a pH. Mm -hmm. Is there anything that you've come across in the past, like, why we don't check a pH in spinal fluid? Yeah, I actually don't know a lot about, um, you know, the acidity uh, changes that we expect in, um, I don't even know, like a normal pH. In yeah, I don't know either. I, yeah. I haven't heard people talk about this, but, you know, you would think like low glucose and lower, more acidic pH would come together, but I, I really just don't think it's been well studied, so I don't. Um, maybe we should do a pilot. Yeah, I was going to say, maybe yeah. we should check yeah. it out. We can copyright that. <laughs> <laughs> don't get any ideas, listeners. <laughs> 
All right, so we have some studies that we can go over for our patient. So we did measure the opening pressure for her, which was 22. We got a white cell count in the CSF, which was 1,027, 66% PMNs, 34% lymphocytes. And then her protein was 253, and her glucose was 24. And we also got a gram stain with that fluid, which came back with gram-positive rods. So does anything about these values make you alter your antibiotic choices that you have for this patient? Yeah, it does, actually. So, I mean, I would say across the board, this is a very strongly, you know, worrisome spinal fluid uh, result set for a pyogenic bacterial process, both with the neutrophilic, pretty significant pleocytosis of over 1,000, um, relatively high protein, and the low glucose together. So kind of the holy trinity of bacterial meningitis <laughs> coming through there. In terms of can you narrow, if you have a convincing gram stain, because it's a relatively modest list of like bacterial pathogens that we deal with routinely, if something really looks congruent with a, a known meningitis pathogen, you can go ahead and narrow and um, the only thing I will say, so gram-positive rods, you know, like I said, she's only 54. You know, she's not screamingly high <laughs> listeria risk, you know, but she certainly could have listerial disease, and that's probably what's going on. I will say back during the uh, anthrax crisis, the first case that was noted was actually like someone who hearkened back to their med school micro class and went to look at the gram stain of the CSF, which actually was reported out as gram-positive rods, but in bacillus anthracis and anthrax, they're called like train boxcar rods. Like they're very uh, long and like, if you can imagine like what a boxcar would look like if you're looking at it from like an aerial mm-hmm. view, kind of long and very straight, whereas like a listeria is like a much shorter curved. So you would never confuse these two things. So there may be some other clues of anthrax, yeah. like a widened mediastinum from hemothorax, mm-hmm. but I'm going to go on a limb and say that we could probably peel off like the ceftraxone as no cephalosporins have activity against listeria, which is why we do this double beta-lactam thing, which kind of makes us feel weird because we don't usually give two beta-lactams at the same time and get rid of the vancomycin because that's only going to be helpful. So if you know you're not dealing with pneumococcus, Mm -hmm. you can toss vancomycin right away for community-acquired meningitis. Obviously, if someone has like post-neurosurgical, they could have things like staph aureus coagulative staph. And then you'd want to go ahead and add your gentamicin into the mix to treat in a more tailored way for presumptive listerial bacterial meningitis. And if you had started steroids, you could you could can them at this point as oh, well. Okay. That reminded me, um, the gram staining, I heard a, a story on another podcast called the Smack Podcast. It was like a anesthesiologist was given sort of like a TED Talk, and he basically had this job where he had to go to Antarctica to be the, the doctor for this research group of like seven people. And one of the people on this research group was like sort of like a mechanic or engineer who took care of the heaters there. Basically, they said that he's the most important person because if the heaters died, it's so cold that everyone else would die. And one day the, the guy who was, you know, uh, manning the heaters didn't show up. And so the doctor went to his room and he was like feverish. He had nuchal rigidity and had meningitis. Oh, my God. Uh, so super scary. So, you know, in the middle of nowhere, he had to do uh, – he did a spinal tap and uh, did a gram stain with a microscope. Wow. And so he said he remembered, you know, doing gram stains from medical school. 
And the whole point of this talk was to like gain skills so that you know you never know when you're going to need them. And then he, you know, he treated. He saw that it was. I don't remember the bug, but he saw that it was bacterial meningitis. And he treated him. You know, I'd probably just give him like all the antibiotics I had. Just give him everything. <laughs> but it was just a crazy story about looking at gram stains. Stuff we learn in medical school comes back. It's useful at times. So just very interesting. Cool. Knowledge is power. Yeah. yeah. All right. So our patient is diagnosed with listeria. She is treated with ampicillin and gentamicin for synergy purposes, and ampicillin is on for 21 days, and then gentamicin uh, we peel off later after she clinically starts improving. She is discharged from the hospital on day 16 and goes to a short-term rehab. And then you see her again, Dr. Grant, in six months. And at that time, she only has one complaint, which is just some mild sensory neural hearing loss. Yeah, it's good to point out uh, sensory neural loss, especially in pediatric populations, is like one of the most common neurologic sequelae uh, of bacterial meningitis. So... Um, that is something to have on your radar. Is that, that is definitely like one of the most common things. So this kind of wraps up our case. Um, you know, awesome discussion. We talked about history taking with meningitis, physical exam features. Kind of, you know, talked about Dr. Quagliarello's study of the these old tests that we learned about difference of meningitis encephalitis or meningoencephalitis and then just you know went over kind of the initial workup uh, of when you're admitting a patient with meningitis in the treatment so i just want to say thanks dr grant it was awesome having you on the show i personally learned a ton uh, and i appreciate it i hope the, the listeners learn as much and we'll have to have you back on for another infection yeah i would love that thank you it's been a pleasure today thank you Thanks for listening. Please share this episode with your friends and rate us on iTunes. We'll see you next time.